Good morning. Last week, uh, we looked at something that David did very right, working his feelings through with God. This week, we're going to look at something he does very wrong. And I'm so grateful that Scripture always portrays real people, not porcelain saints. A lot of times, I'll read biographies of great men and women of God, who God has used throughout uh, history. Men like Hudson Taylor, women like Amy Carmichael. But as I read these biographies, sometimes I just feel like I'm too different than they are. Uh, you know, I don't see the same internal struggles that I experience. I don't see the weaknesses and the selfishness that so often characterizes my own attitudes and behavior. And I just feel so different. I'm tempted to withdraw from their example. God used super putty when he was making uh, them. He used ordinary dirt to make me. I can't identify, so some of the uh, impact of their life is lost on me. One biography that I've read that stands out in contrast is a book called Brushko. It's the autobiography of Bruce Olson. The Indians that he worked with called him Brushko. In it, Olson tells of his own foolishness and sin and often stupidity. He tells how he sat in a uh, South American Indian village for almost two years, not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say. But at the same time, he shows how God used him in all of his helplessness to do great things, to reach entire tribes with the gospel. And as I read that, probably more than any other biography I've ever read, I am encouraged that God can use weak often confused, sometimes compromised human beings like me to do great things. God's faithfulness, God's power, God's persistent faithful nurturing comes through. And I am uh, given hope in Him. He is big enough to use even me. That's why I, I'm so grateful that Scripture always portrays Realistic, real people. It shows their weaknesses as well as their strengths. But at the same time, showing God's overriding and controlling power and faithfulness. And this balanced, realistic portrayal is what we have in the accounts of David's life as well. This morning we're going to be looking at a story in his life where he sins. It tells us about that sin and about the disastrous consequences of that sin. But it does it in a way that doesn't cause us to despise David or to feel comfortable in our own sin. But rather, in a way that helps us understand and identify our own sin so we can turn away from it, turn back to God, receive His forgiveness and His cleansing. So let's go ahead and look at our story. 1 Samuel 21, starting with the first verse. We're told that David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. What had just happened in chapter 20 is that David and Jonathan were trying to figure out what was going on. Why Saul was trying to kill David. And so Jonathan goes to his father and he says, what has David done? Why are you trying to kill him? And Saul responds by calling Jonathan a son of a bitch. And he throws a spear at him, trying to kill him. See, Saul's sin had led him to the point where he hated, even tried to kill his own son, who loved him dearly. 
Well, Jonathan realizes how far Saul has sunk into the pathology of sin. So he goes back and he tells David that he's got to flee. Out of love for his father, Jonathan decides to stay by his father's side. Realizing this is probably the last time he's going to see David. These two powerful, great warriors embrace, weep on each other's shoulder, kiss each other's cheek, say goodbye. Well, David flees to Nob, where Ahimelech, the high priest, has set up the tabernacle there. And we're told that uh, Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? See, Ahimelech knows something's up here. He doesn't know what. Here's the, the king's greatest general. His, his most influential advisor, trusted advisor, and he's sneaking into town all by himself. Something is wrong here. And he just wants to know what's going on so he'll know how to deal with it. So David responds by looking him in the eye and lying. Look at verse 2. David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king, said, the king charged me with certain matters, and he said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission or your instructions. As for my men, I told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. See, again, Himelech is afraid, and so he's asking David. And David looks him in the eye, and without flinching, he lies to him. He tells him he's on a secret mission from Saul and that Ahimelech's supposed to help him. And so he asks him for bread or whatever he can find. And Ahimelech, who seems to be an honorable man, says, I don't have anything here except the showbread, which was set aside by law to be eaten only by the priests. But he says, if you and your men are ritually pure, I'll go ahead and give that to you. And David assures him, yeah, we are. Everything's taken care of. So Ahimelech gives David the showbread. Now, there are many who would argue at this point that Ahimelech was wrong in giving this bread to David. This bread was set aside by the scriptures to be eaten only by the priests. These, this bread is described in Leviticus 24. These are very large loaves of bread, about three and a half pounds of flour in each. There were 12 of them, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And once a week, the priests would bake fresh bread and set it before God as a symbol of the nation's dependence on God to provide their daily bread. Then the old loaves were eaten by the priest as part of their food allotment, finishing out that symbolism of God providing for His people. Some argue that in giving that bread, which Scripture says was only to go to the priest, Ahimelech was compromising. He was, was being drawn into David's sin. But that's not the way that Jesus looked at this incident. Matthew 12, Jesus is explaining the, the law, what it's for. He uses this as an illustration of doing what's right. Let me read some of this. Matthew 12. Jesus said, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. And he uses another illustration. He says, Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate that day? In other words, the priests work on the Sabbath. Yet they are innocent. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. 
If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, Jesus is explaining what the law is all about. The law was never intended to inhibit loving people. The law is the guidelines for loving people. That's its purpose. God gave us the law to facilitate love. And we so quickly turn it into an excuse to, uh, to, 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 to hold people at bay, to not get involved, to not care about them, or to treat them in a harsh, self-righteous manner. Jesus is very clear that this is a perversion of God's intent. We should never use Scripture as a hammer or as a means of insulating ourselves from really caring about others. When we do that, we distort the truth. We misrepresent God. We don't honor Him. Even in those times when truth and love compel us to call somebody to do something that's very hard, very painful, to do the right thing regardless of the pain involved, we can never do that in a way that is hateful or or hardened, that doesn't appreciate the pain and the difficulty, that doesn't enter into the struggle of their life with them. Again, the law was to be used, is to be used to love, not to hate. Take a situation where you have a friend who's struggling with homosexuality. We need to love them enough To tell them that homosexual behavior is sin. It's wrong. Because it's sin, it will destroy them. It will will, uh, distort their personality. It will enslave them. It will lead them to damage others. God calls sin, sin, because sin is so destructive in human life. But even as we tell our friend... That homosexual behavior is wrong, that it's sin. Again, we must never do it in a way that is hateful or hardened to the pain or the the, the difficulty of their struggle. Our use of Scripture must be an expression of our love. Because Scripture is an expression of God's love. It must never be an expression of our hate or indifference or fear. Anyway, Jesus makes it clear that Ahimelech was right in loving David and his men. Ahimelech did the right thing because he knew God's intent, God's heart. But this in no way justifies David, his behavior. David was wrong to lie. David got himself in a tight situation and he chose rather than to turn to God to trust his own schemes. And the result, as we'll see in a minute, were disastrous. Let me notice something, a reality of, of our life of faith. I read somewhere that yesterday's faith 
does not protect us from today's sin. Yesterday's faith does not protect us from today's sin. See, David is a man of faith. And most of the stories we've looked at, we've seen David trusting God in the midst of very difficult situations. Looking to God, working through his feelings with God, waiting on God to bring the victory. But here he seems to have lost sight of all of that. He faces a new situation and he doesn't turn to God. As a result, he blows it. He sins. And this is so often the story of our lives. We trust God in the midst of some terribly difficult and frightening circumstance. And we see His faithfulness. We exalt His work in our lives only to turn around and blow it on the very next opportunity. I know for myself how crushing that is. How it robs me of all my joy and all of the satisfaction of seeing God at work in my life. But our failures are not defeats. They are a summons. They are a call back to God to turn to Him and to receive forgiveness and to be restored and cleansed and to once again put our trust in Him and once again see Him at work in our lives. And as we do that, we, we, we defeat the enemy. We, we rob Him of any victory that He may have over us. Let's not give the enemy any more victory than is necessary. See, that's the miracle of the cross. Our sins are already paid for. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So rather than turning our failures over to Him to be used by the enemy to discourage and dishearten, let's turn our failures over to, to God to be tools in His hands to bring us back to Himself. And to to bring us to understand His grace and His love. To forgive us and cleanse us. And use us once again for His glory. To demonstrate His faithfulness in our lives. In doing that again, we rob the enemy of His victory. We rob Him of any advantage He may have over us. Anyway, let's go back to our story. David lied to Ahimelech to get food. Now, that was totally unnecessary. God had promised to supply His daily bread. But David isn't looking to God. He's trying to take care of it himself. In verse 7, we're told a little glimpse of what was going on at this time. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. While David was there at the tabernacle, we're told that while all this conversation was going on, a guy by the name of Doeg, the Edomite, was there. We're told that he was detained before the Lord. What was probably going on was that Doeg, who was not an Israelite, was changing his citizenship. Doeg, or was not an Israelite, Doeg, who was an Edomite, realized that even though he was advancing quickly in Saul's administration, there would be limits to his advancement as long as he was not an Israelite. And so he was going through the, the, the procedures to change his citizenship, to become an Israelite. And one of the naturalization procedures in those days was to be shut up in the tabernacle for a period of time and observe what was going on, to learn what the worship of the true God was all about. See, Doeg was not there seeking God. He was there seeking his own advancement. He wasn't really interested in spiritual things. He was just going through the motions. He just wanted to pretty up his resume. He wanted to add the spiritual dimension to his life, not really looking for God and God's heart. 
See, this is the kind of man that Saul had begun to surround himself with. Ambitious, shallow, people who lacked integrity. Well, after it's noted that Doeg is there, David continues his deceitful path. He had lied to get food. Now he lies to get a weapon. You know, that's the way it is with sin. It keeps drawing us in a little deeper, a little more. Once we start, it's so hard to stop. Because that first sin didn't get us everything we were after, everything we wanted. And we think with one more, we'll get it all. But that's the lie. Sin will never give us all that we want. It can't. And so it keeps asking a little more, keep taking a little more until it has complete control of our lives. We start thinking that we are in control, but we quickly discover that sin is controlling us. Verses 8 and 9. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon, because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, it is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. David lied to get a weapon, but the weapon he gets is his already. That sword already belonged to David. He took it from Goliath on the day that God delivered Goliath into his hands. He didn't need to lie to get it. Ahimelech would have given it to him. It belonged to him. And so often the things that we are seeking through sin, God has already provided. If we would just turn to Him and receive it from Him rather than scheming and plotting how to sneak it from Him. Well, what happens next, we're going to skip over and come back to it at a later date. Let me just tell you that David's deception and his lying degenerated to the point where he found himself trapped in, a, in an enemy city, having to pretend to be insane, drooling all over himself and acting like a fool in order to escape execution. You see, sin degrades us profoundly. Sin leads us to humiliate and degrade ourselves. And Satan won't be satisfied until he is made an utter fool of us, until we are completely covered with shame. Picking up again at the beginning of of chapter 22, starting with verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. David goes from there over to a city about three-hour walk west of Bethlehem, and he holds out in some caves above the city. His family hears that he's there, and rather than run the risk of becoming hostages in Saul's hands, they go and join him there. But so do about 400 other people. In fact, we're told that everyone who was running from trouble, who was running from legal trouble, who was bitter against Saul's administration, came and joined David there. And when I read this, I think of the old Oakland Raiders under John Madden. How they used to pick up all of the misfits and the rejects from all of the other football teams in the league. And then they would mold them into the best that the NFL had to offer. 
That's exactly what David did. He took all of these misfits and malcontents and he brought them together. And through integrity and discipline and fair treatment, he molded them into what were later known as the mighty men of David. Men whose discipline and loyalty and military prowess were the epitome of the Israelite fighting man. See, this is an example of the effect a life of faith can have on others. When we let God lead, the potential for impact for good is enormous. From there, David took his family over to the country of Moab, east of the Jordan. He took them to Moab because I think they had relatives there. Uh, David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. And what a contrast her beautiful conversion to the living God was to the cheap, shallow conversion of Doeg. But anyway, after uh, David drops off his family, he stays, starts to settle in until a prophet of God by the name of Gad comes and tells him, get back to God's people, get back to Judah. You see, when we're hurting or in trouble, turning to unbelievers is fine, it's okay. But if we stay there, even though they're very helpful and, and kind, if we stay there and don't come back to God's people, we can be pulled away from our faith, pulled away from God. From here, the uh, scene shifts to Gibeah, where Saul is holding counsel outside under a tamarisk tree. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all of his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does this day. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Somehow Saul got wind of what was going on. Somehow he knew of the covenant between David and Jonathan. Now the only way for him to know that is if Jonathan had told him. Because only David and Jonathan knew. So Jonathan must have still been trying to convince Saul that David was loyal, that David loved him. But Saul did not want to hear reality. He was too consumed with his virtual reality that he constructed out of bits and pieces of his own jealousy and suspicion. And when we reject the truth, our own distorted version of reality becomes compelling. We become absorbed in it. And no one, not even those who love us most, our wives, our children, can penetrate that and bring us back to the truth. And the result is always the most destructive of behavior. So Saul is there confronting all of his attendants, none of whom he trusts by now. You see, all these guys had worked with David. They knew David. They knew his heart. They knew his loyalty to Saul. 
But Saul didn't want to hear that. And so he suspects them all of taking bribes from David. Now what isolated, lonely people sin makes us. Saul is desperately trying to avoid his own responsibility, desperately trying to avoid the fact that his own behavior chased David away. His own behavior destroyed the relationship he once enjoyed with his son, Jonathan. And there's one man there who sees in Saul's self-deception an opportunity for his own advancement. Doeg, the Edomite. So in the smooth the slimy manner of a traitor, agreeing with what he knows to be a distortion of the truth. Doeg tells Saul all about the meeting between David and Ahimelech. He confirms all of Saul's unfounded fears. Tells him the truth, but he conveniently leaves out the part about the fact that Ahimelech was innocent. That Ahimelech didn't know what was going on. That he had questioned David when David had first got there and David lied to him. You see, Doeg knows that Saul does not want to find another innocent man. He wants to find a guilty person on whom he can pour out his frustration and, and, and the disquiet of his soul. So Doeg accommodates him. Who cares what happens to an innocent man? Throughout Scripture... There are very few things that God hates more than people who stir up this kind of trouble. He calls them false witnesses and slanderers and rebellious empty talkers who separate friends and stir up all kinds of evil. God hates this with a passion because there are few things more destructive and defiling than the effects of their work. But boy, how easy it is to get involved in that kind of thing. You're standing around talking to someone who's obviously upset with somebody else, maybe the boss, maybe a co-worker, maybe a family member. While you're listening to their complaints, this overwhelming urge comes over you to tell them what that other person said about them. Or tell them something else that other person did that would confirm that they really are worthy of this kind of resentment. To add to their to their being hurt and being upset. Well, that urge comes straight from the pit of hell. This is one of the easiest, most tempting, yet most destructive of all of our sins. And it's one we must reject and resist with every ounce of fortitude that God can supply. It may seem so harmless and innocent, but it's one of the worst things that we can be guilty of. And the effects of Doeg's duplicity and treachery are enormous. Saul calls for the priests and all of the priests come. He's already made up his mind that they're guilty before he ever heard their side of it. Verse 13. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does this day. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. 
But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, You turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with all its men and women, its children and infants and cattle and donkeys and sheep. Saul questions Ahimelech, and Ahimelech handles himself wonderfully. He doesn't start whining about how David dis him. He doesn't shift the focus to, to David, which would have been a, a, a strategic maneuver. But Ahimelech is a man of honor, and he will not participate in the injustice being perpetrated against David. Ahimelech is a man of courage, the kind of man that Saul needed to hear from. He tells Saul exactly like it is. He says, you have no more loyal servant than David, and I was right to help him. And there wasn't a trace of rebellion or disloyalty in my motive. Saul has already made up his mind, and he condemns all of the priests. Now, in doing that, he wasn't just condemning innocent men, as, as terrible as that is. But he was also condemning the representatives of Yahweh. Saul's sin had reached its completion, its consummation, being expressed in absolute murderous Hatred toward God. My friends, that's what sin is really about. Ultimately, it is hatred toward God. Saul turns to his guards and says, kill these guys. These are our true military men, men of honor. And they know that Saul's paranoia has gone beyond the limits of sanity. And so they all refuse. So Saul turns to the only friend that he has left, the scheming, cowardly, evil Doeg, who gladly carries out this execution of these men of God. And then, under Saul's orders, goes and kills off the entire village of Nob, killing all of the women, the children, the babies, and the livestock. An entire city is wiped out because of a conspiracy that existed only in the demented mind of Saul, inflamed by the evil Doeg. And in the midst of this horror comes the punchline. Verse 20, But Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. David admits that all of this is his responsibility. His sin led to this. And so he says to Abiathar, Ahimelech's son, I am am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. And David was right. Now there were intermediate causes and other people at fault. David could have said, damn that Doeg, it's all his fault. 
Or he could have focused on Saul and his insane hatred of him. But he doesn't. He's man enough. He has the courage to face his own responsibility, to face reality, to admit that he sinned, knowing that he was putting others in danger and not caring enough, not brave enough to stop. You see, he had gone to, uh, to Ahimelech by himself, secretly, thinking this was a very private, a very secret sin. Nobody would be hurt. Nobody would even know. And now he's facing the reality that there are no secret sins. Life doesn't work that way. A very close friend of mine was telling me how they had to, or how he had to face that in his own life. How several years ago God confronted his struggles with pornography. I mean, it was such a private thing. Nobody even knew about it. It was a victimless sin, a secret sin. How could it be hurting anyone? But God, by His grace, peeled back the delusion, showed him a little of what was going on. God showed him how at the very least he was participating in something that was adding to the destruction, the denigration of his whole society. God showed him how careless he had become of the effect he was having on the clerk in a store where he may be browsing. Just like David closed his eyes to the impact he might be having on Ahimelech, he was closing his eyes to the impact he might be having on others. He wasn't available to God to love them or to share the gospel with them. In fact, he was pretending he didn't know God. He was denying his Lord. But even more, God showed him what he was doing to his family. The frustration, the self-content, the contempt, the guilt that was the inevitable uh, result of failure in this area was spilling over to affect the way he treated his family. He had become critical and harsh in his discipline. It affected his closeness to his wife, the way he looked at her. Through its impact on him, this sin was damaging the self-image and the spiritual health of the people that he loved most. Jesus said, Satan wants to plunder the house of a strong man. First, he must bind that man. He was allowing himself to be bound and Satan was plundering his home, causing all kinds of confusion and dissension and discord and rebellion. The fruit was destructive. And as he said, God in his grace, in his mercy, peeled back the self-deception and showed him that this secret, seemingly harmless little sin was destroying the people that he loved most. And until he faced that, he was having no victory in that. It wasn't until he honestly admitted and faced that that he began to find freedom. See, the same thing is true in my secret sins and in your secret sins, whatever they are, whether it's lust, and it seems so private, so harmless. But there are no affairs that start cold turkey. It always starts with private, secret, seemingly harmless lust. 
And no one goes into an affair thinking of the devastation they're going to cause the people they love, their wives, their children, their family, their friends, their church. Maybe your secret is that you indulge on business trips. I heard a story from the man to whom it happened that made my blood run cold. He was in another city, the city where one of his daughters was in college. He'd visited her, come back to the hotel room, and he thought, who would ever know if he hired a prostitute for the evening? So he called up an escort service, and when he went to the door to let the prostitute in the room, there stood his own daughter, who herself thought she had a secret victimless sin. Or maybe your sin is less blatant. Maybe you think that your dishonesty or your cutthroat attitude at work is the way business is done. It's not affecting your family. Well, you're deceiving yourself. It is profoundly affecting your family. You are leading your family away from closeness to God. And the impact on your family is going to be disastrous. Or maybe it's that little gossip that seems so harmless and innocent. I realize that you are acting as an enemy of God. Maybe it's your lack of discipline in your eating habits. Or some food compulsion that you think only is hurting you. It's not hurting anybody else. Well, you're wrong. Through your own self-contempt, it is destroying, damaging the self-image of your children. It's keeping you from loving your husband. Or maybe it's that bit of bitterness that you keep in your heart towards your mother or your father somebody else in your life. And you think it's only between you and God. But sin doesn't work that way. It is affecting and infecting and destroying the people that you love. God has told us, He has commanded us to love. To the degree that we don't trust Him, to the degree that we don't obey Him, we are not loving We're not available to Him to love others through us. In fact, to the degree that we don't trust Him and obey Him, we are actually hating those we say we love. Probably our most dangerous sin is our refusal to face this. I don't tell you all of this to drown you in guilt. That is not God's plan. But I tell you this in hopes that you will be man enough or woman enough to, like David, face squarely your sin and your responsibility, recognizing that much of the harm and the damage to people around you whom you love is the effects of your sin. To have the courage, like David, to say, I am responsible. To not look for a secondary, uh, intermediate cause. To not look for somebody else whose sin is worse than yours that you can blame it on. But to say, I am responsible. And as you face yourself in the crushing burden of your sin, it will drive you back to God. To seek forgiveness. To seek cleansing from that unrighteousness. In 1 John 1.9, we are told, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In cleansing us from unrighteousness, He is freeing us 
from those compulsions, from those secret sins. It may not happen easily. It may not happen quickly, but it will happen. He has promised it. And the very first step is facing our own responsibility and our own sin. Not blaming, not looking elsewhere, but squarely facing our own responsibility. One of my deep longings for this church is that it will be a place where we do face ourselves and our sin, what it is and what it does. And together we seek God and we seek to be cleansed and delivered from those sins by persistent dependence on God and His grace. May He give us the courage to make it so. Let's pray.